Hey, this is Kevin Weatherby at Save the Cowboy. I want you to tow that stirrup, throw a leg over the candle, take a deep seat, and pull your hat down tight. I ain't gonna tolerate no whining or griping, so let's all strike a long trot down that narrow trail and learn how to ride with God. Come on! What you waiting on? Let's go. Today, I, today's gonna be a little bit different, okay? Um, most of the time, whenever I preach it's really application based and stuff like that but today is going to be just a little bit different and what i mean by a little bit different is what i hope to accomplish today is more along the lines of uh i hope to put you know like does anybody in here do puzzles you know what i mean like you know, as you put pieces in, you start to see the bigger picture. That's really what I'm going for today because we are in the last part of a series called Grown Ups, going from a childlike faith to a grown up salvation. Okay. And so we are going back and we are looking at all of these. Uh, Bible stories, uh, predominantly at least this time for this go around in the Old Testament, and um, kind of the stuff that you learn in Sunday school or the Bible stories that you've read before, you know, we talked about creation and Cain and Abel, and then we talked about uh, King David and, you know, all of that. And so we've been going through these uh, old Bible stories, and today, we're going to get to Jonah. And, and the crazy part about Jonah, and I know what you've already thought. I know that story. I know that story. I know Jonah and the whale, right? Everybody knows Jonah. Big fish, that's right. But today I hope to use Jonah and put a puzzle piece in and we're going to be kind of all over the, the Old Testament. And before service, I said, this is probably one of the most technical sermons I've ever preached. So I was sitting here with Doc and just sitting there reading over and over because there's a bunch of dates. And I hope that God will use my gifts of making things that are complicated, easier to understand. And I hope during this, at the end of this sermon, that you will have about four. That is the coolest hat in the world. It, it is. It's cool. It, it is. Sorry. I, I didn't see it earlier. I'm, ju I'm just right here just now. So anyway, uh, I, I, I hope that you have about four aha moments. And if you want a fifth, just go look at Nate's hat. Okay. For the fifth aha moment today. But I really do. I think today with the story of Jonah and some things that happened around it, you're going to be like, Oh, that's what that is. Oh, that's what that is. That's my goal today. So anyway, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Jonah. And we'll also be in 2 Kings. We'll also be in Isaiah. And we will also be in Matthew chapter 12. So let's go over the story of Jonah, just, just in case. So Jonah is a prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel. This is after the two kingdoms have split. More on that later. But God tells this prophet Jonah to go to a city called Nineveh. Okay? Go to a city called Nineveh because if they don't change the way they're doing things, I'm going to give them the Sodom and Gomorrah treatment. I'm going to destroy them. Well, the Assyrians at the time of Jonah 
are bad, bad people. I mean, like they're, they're, they've conquered like everything. Now they haven't conquered Israel yet, but they're bad people. They're the, they're the biggest superpower in the world. They're the, they're the communists, right? So God tells Jonah, and, and this is what, this, maybe this is a half aha, okay? Have you ever wondered that, how many times do you hear in the Old Testament of God sending a prophet to a foreign land to ask them to repent? You don't. I mean, like, it's unheard of. Even when Jesus came, when he sent out the 72 disciples, he said, don't go to anybody except Israel. Don't go anywhere else. Not until Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, does God really give permission for, you know, Christianity to spread outside of Israel. So, uh, so when Jonah is asked to go to Nineveh to preach a message of repentance before everything, you know, before God destroys them, you have to understand that this was unheard of. God, God didn't do that. God was the God of Israel, not of Nineveh. And I mean, basically Jonah's like, you know what? To heck with those guys. Let, let, let it happen. It'll save us all, you know, some time. So, so God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, okay, I'll go to Nineveh. You ever seen a two-year-old hold something that he's not supposed to have? You ever tried to get that back? That was Jonah. He's like, okay, I'll go to Nineveh. Running like Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean, right? He runs to the first boat he can find on the Mediterranean and sets sail for Tarshish. And then... He's asleep in the bottom of the boat, and a hurricane comes in, which is kind of crazy because you don't really see hurricanes on the Mediterranean, but that's kind of the way it sounded. And uh, so the sailors are, and they know that this is not natural for the Mediterranean. So they start casting lots, maybe rolling some dice to figure out who the problem is, right? And the problem points to Jonah, and Jonah says, yeah, it's me. I'm supposed to go to Nineveh, but I'm going the other direction. They said, well, what should we do about it? He said, probably throw me overboard. Now, you have to understand. Now, it doesn't say this in Scripture, but by contextual clues of Jonah's life, he was not being altruistic for the sailors. He would rather die than go to Nineveh. And so he says, throw me overboard, because he's thinking, then I won't have to go to Nineveh. <laughs> yeah, joke's on you, buddy. So they throw him overboard and the storm stops so they knew it was right and God sent a big fish to swallow Jonah. So um, then three days later on the shore and like I just have to imagine that God in his infinite wisdom had that fish go puke Jonah out at the very spot where he got on the boat. For some reason, I ju it just had to happen like that, right? Uh, uh, uh. Now, um, what is, it? well, we'll kind of get to that in a minute. So after he gets puked up on the shore, he goes to Nineveh, and there was about 120,000 people that live in Nineveh, and he gives them the message that God told him to give, 
and to his utter dismay, Nineveh does exactly what God wants them to do. They repent of all of their evil ways, and they dress themselves in sackcloth like Jewish people do, and, and, and they repent. And it makes Jonah so mad that he goes outside and sits down in the heat and just sulks, right? Just sulks. And God is like, why are you acting like this? Jonah's like, just kill me. So, you know, God felt sorry for him. So he had this like vine grow up that had these leaves. And God made this supernatural plant grow up and then cover Jonah so that he wasn't, you know, this is a desert, right? So he's not in the sun. Well, then God sends a worm to kill the plant and it shrivels up and Jonah's just like, he just doubles everything. Oh no, great, now my plant died. Just kill me, right? And coincidentally enough, that's where the book of Jonah ends. <laughs> just right there. Jonah said his plant dies, and, and you know, I mean, God has a conversation with him about it. He said, man, that's just a plant. And you're worried about the plant dying. I was worried about 120,000 of my kids that are misbehaving. I was worried about them dying. You know, why can't you see that? Just kill me, God. I often wonder if he did. Okay, so there is the book of Jonah in a nutshell. So let's talk about some of the more well-known lessons that we can get from the book of Jonah. So Jonah runs from God, right? Which we have, every single one of us, has done at some point in our life. We have run from God, what we know we should do, and we go the complete opposite direction. But, you know, I mean, think about this. How patient is God? I mean, the Assyrians, not only were they killing people, but they were killing their own child sacrifices and golden idols and all of the stuff that, that happens when you don't follow God. And God still loved them, right? But Jonah runs from God, but God is patient. He was patient with Nineveh. He was patient with Jonah. And he's patient with us, even when we act like spoiled brats. But is, but is God's patience good news? Well, of course it is. Of course it is, because anybody that's listening to me right now has the chance right now. And I don't know how long this chance will last, so I'll spit it out. They have a chance to believe in God. And I don't mean just by believing there is a God. I'm talking about putting your total 100% faith, trust, and obedience in God, right? And you go to heaven. And God is waiting on people, and, and maybe you're one of them that just, man, you know what you should do, but you just haven't done it yet. And I think that maybe it's not giving your life to God. Maybe it's something else. You've already done that, but God has been speaking to you about something, and you haven't done it yet because you kind of got the spirit of Jonah in you. For some reason, you don't want to get that done. Maybe it's too hard. Maybe it's going to wreck your life because you know it's going to make big changes and stuff like that. But, but listen, here, here's, here's something that, that you need to know about God is that a lot of times when you're not really hearing from God, it's because of his patience. Not his, his, he's not ignoring you. He's being patient because here's the deal. 
This isn't a multiple, ooh, I nearly knocked, nearly knocked Fido off. Uh, this isn't a multiple, Christianity isn't a multiple choice test, right? So when God says, hey, I want you to do this, he steps back until you do it. And you may be like Jonah, running, getting on a ship and doing everything you're not supposed to do. But then you're wondering why you haven't heard from God, why God isn't blessing you. Well, it's probably because of God's patience, because he's never he's not going to say, hey, go clean your room, Tyler. And then Tyler doesn't do it. And then he says, well, I guess he didn't want to do that. I'll give him something else to do. You know, well, Tyler, you need to do this. And Tyler doesn't do it. He goes, well, maybe he didn't want to do that either. So I'll give him. It doesn't. God doesn't work like that. So if you feel stuck, if you feel like God, you know, maybe isn't talking to you like he did at one time, maybe you need to pray and ask him, is there something that you're waiting on me for, God? Because we don't need that spirit of Jonah to run from God. So the more well-known lessons, one of them is the fact that God is patient, right? The second well-known lesson from the book of Jonah is that he is swallowed by a big fish, right? Now, the question is what? Was he alive or dead? Well, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 and 40, this is what Jesus himself says. The sinful people of this day, Jesus talking, the sinful people of this day look for something special to see. There will be nothing special to see but the powerful works of the early preacher Jonah. Jonah was three days and three nights in the stomach of a big fish. The son of man will be three days and three nights in the grave also. Now, was Jonah alive or dead? We know Jesus was dead in the tomb for three days. Was Jonah alive or dead? Well, let me ask you a different question. Instead of asking if Jonah was alive or dead, what is the bigger miracle? Jonah dies in a fish and then he's resurrected three days later in a pile of fish puke. Or that God kept him alive in the stomach of a fish for three days. Pick your miracle. I don't care, right? I see people getting in arguments about this all the time. Who cares? Who cares? It's a miracle either way. It's kind of like the Exodus when, when like atheists and everything, they say, well, where they crossed the Red Sea, it was only knee deep. Praise God, that is the biggest miracle in the world, how God drowned an entire Egyptian army in knee-deep water. <laughs> right? You, you see what I'm saying? Who, I mean, like, may, maybe it doesn't really say. So think whatever you want. And, and I think that really, uh, besides the symbolism of it, Jesus himself doesn't even give us the answer, right? So maybe they're saying that, whether he was alive or dead isn't really the point. It's the point that he was in there three days and three nights and then brought back to life to fulfill his purpose, just like 
Jesus was. But the most amazing part of that verse, and I hope you caught it, was this right here. There will be nothing special to see but the powerful works of the early preacher Jonah. Nothing but the powerful works. Well, what are the powerful works? Well, number one, the powerful works was that the good news of God was taken to the enemies of God, right? And you know what we're called in the Bible, those that don't believe in God? What are they called? The enemies of God. If you don't believe in God, you're either on his team or you're not. And so if you're not on his team, you're an enemy of God. And one of the powerful works of Jonah was the fact that he took God to God's enemies and they repented and turned to God. That's a powerful work of the early preacher, Jonah. Now, in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, and maybe I'm being a little too hard on Jonah because, you know, no Assyrians, he might have had family killed by it. He might have seen some atrocities by him or something. But anyway, he doesn't want to go. But let me read you his amazing sermon out of Jonah chapter 3. Starts in verse 4, and it ends in verse 4. <laughs> On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And that's all he says. That was his entire sermon. And God was like, oh, you want to be that way? Well, watch, I'll make you mad. I'll make it work. Boom. Right? And that just made him even more mad. Right? That was his whole sermon. And it worked. Why? Because he was doing what God told him to. And God is faithful. He is just. And he is merciful even to his enemies. He always tries to give them the chance to repent and turn to him. Just like he does us. So... With all of that being said, that's probably what you knew. Let's go to probably what you didn't know. In the mid-1800s, there was a young man from Britain that was royalty of some sort, you know, back when they had lords and ladies, and, and I think this guy called himself a lord, and he went to the Holy Land and tried to, and once he was there, he decided to try to find the biblical city of Nineveh. And so he goes to the area that it's supposed to be, and they find it. Now, here's, uh, here's something that maybe you didn't know. You ever heard of Mosul, Iraq? You did in 2014 and 2015, because it was the headquarters of ISIS, right? And what was ISIS known for? Chopping things off, right? Chopping people's heads off on the internet and stuff like that, right? Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that where ISIS was headquartered is the hometown of Nineveh. Ne the ruins of Nineveh are at Mosul, Iraq. And he finds these walls, what look like just a, like a, like a, I don't know, 
like the edge of a river or something, like a bank. He started digging into that and found a stone wall. Well, they, they end up going through all of this and finding some stuff. And then he goes, I believe it's to the southwest corner of Nineveh. And there was a large mound there that looked like a little mountain, right? And oh, it's not that big, but bigger than the surrounding areas. And he digs a vertical shaft 20 feet and he hits clay-fired bricks. So they know that there's something down there. So once they hit that, they start going out and they start going towards the mound because they're on the edge of it. And what they uncover is the palace of the Assyrian king Sennacherib, okay? And if you go, to, has anybody here been to the British Museum, the British Royal Museum? That's, I, I'm going to go there now. I, I got to go, right? But they found these big stone relief carvings of uh, a bull's body with a human head, and they're guarding an entrance to something. And so they know that you don't put that there for the toilet, okay? You put it there for something amazing. So they keep digging this, this shaft in there, and they come to this big conference room. Well, the, the cool thing about this conference room is it's, it's just adobe bricks, but they had laid stone slabs along the wall and carved reliefs into these stone slabs. So if you were there way back 600 BC, you would be walking and there would be like these carving reliefs leading into this big gallery. And you know how it is, if you walk into a gallery, like, have you ever seen the picture of the Mona Lisa? It's in like a rectangle room and there's this huge long line and the Mona Lisa is at the very end in the middle because that's where you put things of prominence, right? So when you walk in, when they got to the end, there was a relief painting of this siege ramp leading up and all of these archers firing arrows and stuff coming up from each side and somebody kind of sitting over here watching it happen. And coincidentally enough, it's like a new, it's like an ancient Bronze Age news report because it has a little caption next to the guy sitting there. But the problem is, is that caption is in cuneiform. And in the mid-1800s, nobody could read cuneiform, so they didn't know what it was, right? They also found some six-sided prisms. And, and I mean, it, it, just imagine a a cylinder looking thing with six sides and cuneiform written on all six sides. It tells a story, right? They found some of these cuneiform tablets, okay? So the, when they finally, and a guy from England ended up being able to decipher cuneiform and they read what it said for the first time ever. The gallery stone relief that you can still go see to this day in the British Royal Museum said this. Sennacherib, the mighty king, king of the country of Assyria, sitting on the throne of judgment before the city of Lachish, I give permission for its slaughter. Right? Why is that important? And what does it have to do with Jonah? Let's go. 
some important concepts, time frames, history, dates, and people that you need to know of so that now we're starting to, we've we kind of had a blank area in our biblical knowledge and, and we found some pieces that are going together and pretty soon it's going to paint a very pretty picture. So Jonah, when did Jonah go to Nineveh? Okay. So this date isn't really going to mean anything to you. So just always keep in mind that Solomon and David are right around 1000 BC. Okay, that just gives us a starting point because we're real familiar with King David. That's 1000 BC. So we know that everything before David was before 1000 BC. Jonah preaches to Nineveh in about 760 BC, 240 years after King David, okay, is when he is sent to Nineveh, 760 BC. Now, he was from the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? And I love this because I can already see it's playing out like Paul Harvey's rest of the story. What was I saying? Oh, he was from the northern kingdom of Israel. Why is that important, right? Does anybody even know why there is two kingdoms? And when did it happen? Why did it happen? Here's your real quick Jeopardy history lesson, okay? After King Solomon, now King Solomon was the wisest person that ever lived, right? Well, he was till he got old. And then he started worshiping idols and stuff like that. He was kind of a piece of junk at the end of his life, to be quite honest with you. He was not the man after God's own heart that he started out to be as being the son of David, but still uh, God's promise to bring an heir from King David's line that will rule for all time. You know, it doesn't matter if they're pieces of junk, that line has to continue. So because of, and, and because of Solomon and the, some of the things he did, when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam, do not name your kids Rehoboam. I don't care how cool and stylish it is, don't do it to the poor child. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, becomes the king of the unified, still unified Israel. One of Solomon's officials, some say, sometimes it says official, sometimes it says servant, but nonetheless, somebody that was close to, that worked for Solomon, his name was Jeroboam. Same thing, do not name your kid Jeroboam. Um, that's not one of the cool Old Testament names like Isaiah, right? And so God tells Jeroboam to take, uh, I think it was 10 leaves or something. Like there was 12 leaves and, and the prophet pushed 10 of them to Jeroboam and said, you're gonna rule these 10. So basically God splits the kingdom, Jeroboam, is the northern kingdom of Israel. Their capital is Samaria, but it's not Samaria yet, okay? It's, it's, it's a cool part. There are no Samaritans yet, okay? So Samaria is right here. That's where the northern kingdom of Israel is. And have you ever heard the term the 10 lost tribes of Israel? Let me explain the 10 lost tribes of Israel to you. You, you, we just seen how uh, 
because of Solomon and, and, and other things, okay? The, the tribes, they were like brothers, okay? They hated each other. All the tribes did. The only time they got mad is if, you know, they were the only ones that could beat up their own brothers, right? Nobody else could beat them up. So they would unify with an outside attack, but there was all this internal strife. So anyway, during this time is when the Assyrians come and they, they wipe out the northern kingdom. Now, this is after Jonah, Okay, this is after Jonah. But the Assyrians come in. But the thing that the Assyrians did is they didn't kill everybody. What they did is they would take, they would conquer Elbert and take the Elbert people to Kiowa and take some Kiowa people to Elbert, right? Just so that the whole culture would get messed up. And that's how the Samaritans got there because they took all of the Jewish people from the Northern Kingdom, spread them throughout the Assyrian Empire, and then put Assyrians in the Northern Kingdom to hold it. Well, obviously it wasn't the, uh, all of them left. So the Jews that were left in the Northern Kingdom started marrying the Assyrians and other foreigners. And that's how Samaria is born, right? The half-blood Jews that, that the Jewish people hated and everything like that. So the Assyrians conquered them in 722 BC. Now, I've given you three dates. 1000 BC is the, is the time of David. Not exactly, but close enough. 1000 BC, Jonah preaches to Nineveh in 760 BC, and the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom where Jonah came from in 722 BC. So Nineveh's repentance, what, do you remember what his sermon was? 40 days God is gonna destroy Nineveh. Well, that 40 days turned into 40 years and the Assyrians had lost their repentance. No long, now, now they're attacking Israel and it's God, not the other way around. So 40 years after Jonah is when the Northern Kingdom was split and the 10 tribes were lost. Now they're not really lost, they're just, they were intermingled with the rest of the world. No longer are they a race of purebred Hebrew people anymore, right? So the Assyrians took them captive to move new people in. The Assyrians were one of the world's first superpowers and ruled the known world. Hang with me. Okay. Um, in 2 Kings chapter 19, okay, this is what it says, starting in verse 8 and then verses 10 and 11. This message is for King Hezekiah of Judah. Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you with promises that Jerusalem will not be captured by the king of Assyria. You know perfectly well what the kings of Assyria have done wherever they have gone. They have completely destroyed everyone who stood in the way. Why should you be any different? That is Sennacherib talking to the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, which is only comprised of two, because there's 12 tribes, 10 of them are lost. The two tribes are Judah and Benjamin. So Sennacherib, 
sends a message to Jerusalem to tell Hezekiah, I'm coming for you next, buddy. I'm coming for you next. And that God that supposedly rules your area, here's what he doesn't say. There were 47 walled cities in Judah and Lachish was the 46th one destroyed. Okay? The Assyrians had never been beat. Not one time. They had never, ever, ever been beat. In Isaiah chapter 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, King Sennacherib of Assyria came to attack the fortified towns of Judah and conquered them, right? So do you remember what the stone relief said that's still in the British Museum? Above the, the siege tower and everybody's show, throwing arrows, or throwing arrows. <clears throat> Sennacherib, the mighty king, king of the country of Assyria, sitting on the throne of judgment before the city of Lachish. I give permission for its slaughter. This was the culmination. This is the Mona Lisa of King Sennacherib's conquest was the city of Lachish. And then he sends a messenger to King Hezekiah, who's in Jerusalem, right? And he says, I'm coming for you. Okay, you remember that little prism that I was talking about with the six sides? Well, once they started being able to translate cuneiform, they did this prism. And this was one of the things written on the prism. Hezekiah, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem his royal residence like a bird in a cage. Now, for those of us that have been to Israel, you can go and walk down Hezekiah's tunnel, which leads to the Pool of Siloam at the very end. They were getting ready for the Assyrian siege against them, and they needed a water source. So Hezekiah dug a tunnel through solid rock from Jerusalem up here down to a spring that was underground, right? So, got that done. Hezekiah, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence like a bird in a cage. What was on the relief? The city of Lachish, the one right before they attacked Jerusalem. I wonder why Jerusalem's not on there. Uh, let's read. 2 Kings chapter 19, one of the coolest Passages is in the Bible. So Sennacherib and the whole Assyrian army, which numbered, a, well, more than 185,000. How do I know that? I'll tell you in a second. Are laying siege to Jerusalem, right? Second Kings 19, 35 and 36. That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, when the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found 185,000 corpses. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. He went home to his capital of Nineveh, and he stayed there. <laughs> he got his butt handed to him. 
by this God that he was, oh, you're going to put your faith and trust in this God? You better not do it because we're the Assyrians and we've never been beat. And well, the angel of the Lord came down and wiped out 185,000 people. Listen, Jonah warned that now, why did God save Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, and not the northern kingdom? Well, the answer is simple. He made a promise to King David that through his royal line, a Messiah would be born from David's line. So he can't, God can't really let the Assyrians take over Jerusalem and destroy Rehoboam, who is the one in line for the deal. So God is keeping his promise to King David when he does that. Now, like we said earlier, Jonah warned that Nineveh couldn't be, would be destroyed in 40 days, but it was a prophet, Nahum, and if you, it's, in, it's in your Bible, I know you've never heard of it, but it's in there, um, Nahum that finally announced that Nineveh would be destroyed once and for all. And I didn't write the verse down, but it says that sheep and goats would, would graze its streets. And that's what it is today. It's, it's a field with sheep and goats. <laughs> you know, 3,000 years later, 2,500 years later, whatever it is, it came true. Uh, Nahum was written in 650 BC, okay? 40 years later, isn't it funny how those numbers always come up? 40 years later, Nineveh is destroyed once and for all by a group of people called the Medes. Now you see archeological evidence. I said that there was a mound where the palace was. If you go look it up, the city of Nineveh, there's also another temple there, and I, I can't pronounce it in Arabic because that's what it's written in, but it's the temple of Jonah. Still to this day, whenever they, they dug down there, they had an inscription that it was the temple of Jonah that had come to save the Assyrian people and to warn them, and it didn't work. So now we have archaeological evidence to back up that what the Bible says is absolutely 100% true. And we can even see how Jesus said mentions Jonah all the way in the New Testament. We have learned of how the two kingdoms split. Uh, well, that was before Jonah, but you know, why the two kingdoms split and the impact that all of that has. But here's what it all means. If God would go through all of that trouble to save his own enemies before their actions led to their demise, I wonder what lengths he would go through to save his enemies today, right? And who are his enemies today? It's us. The length, what length would God go to? Well, let me tell you what length he would go to to save us. The length he went was the death of his son, the life and death of his son, who like Jonah, was dead for three days and then came back to life. And we've already discussed, you can think however you want to. Was in a whale or was in a fish for three days, just like Jesus was in a tomb for three days and then came back to life 
so that we might know the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God. Right there. And one other thing. One other thing. And this one might be the most important. The choices and chances we make and take have eternal consequences. Listen, nothing is for nothing. Nothing is for nothing. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for, for teaching us grown-up stuff about your word, where we understand how the importance that Israel played and we see the promises that you have made and you've been keeping those promises since 1000 BC and they have not changed today. And God, just as you promised David that the Messiah would come from him, but you also said that that Messiah would rule from Jerusalem one day with King David as the vice president. God, we look forward to that day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your patience. And God, thank you most of all for sending the Messiah to save us for who and, and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. God, thank you today for, for completing a picture so that we might understand you and your grace and your mercy so much. God, we love you, and maybe I should say, God, we love you too. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.